Hey, well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, and it's good to be in God's house this morning, uh, opening up the word to you. You know, when I was, when I was new to the faith, um, <laughs> I had a difficult time like reading God's word and then like it, like giving me life, like understanding and comprehending. So I had this buddy that, that uh, it seemed like he had like a direct line to God. He was, I mean, he was like always like walking in the spirit, you know, and he was just dropping these, this wisdom on me. And I was just blown away. And I was like, bro, you got to tell me what's the secret. I want to hear God speak to me. And he said, Hey man, it's really easy. Just read your Bible out loud. That's supposed to be funny a little bit, but it's true, right? I mean, I think a lot of times we can think there's this kind of magic bullet on having a walk with God that's like someone else's, someone that seems to have it a little more together, a little more near to the Lord than you. But it's really enough just to hear the word of the Lord out loud. If you're new to New City, one of the things that it's important to know about the vision of our church is this. It's the significance of God's word. And you heard it a little bit with our new covenant partners this morning. Um, The thing about reading the word is that we believe that something significant occurs when we hear God's word, but when we also hear it expounded. And I think it's the biggest chance that we have in the week to give God the the megaphone and ask him to speak instead of the world around us. And um, the way that we we do that here at New City Church is we we preach expositionally through books of the Bible. Um, and, and here's the reason why we do that. Um, we do that because we can't avoid things that maybe are easy to avoid. Um, like you can sometimes when you're just kind of picking and choosing what you want to preach, but also it helps us to learn how to be bound to God's word and for God's word to bless us. It teaches us how to read the Bible. And so, uh, we're, with that being said, uh, in September of 2020, our church began a journey traversing through the book of Genesis. And uh, in that journey, uh, we, we at, at the outset, admittedly agreed that the only way to make sense of our lives in September of 2020 with the year that we had had was to go back and rediscover um, and to find our meaning and purpose in God's design and creation. So we spent 30 weeks looking at the first half of the book of Genesis. We looked at creation. Uh, we, we looked at Adam and Eve, the garden, uh, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and the life and times of Abraham. And we, one of the things that we noticed throughout that journey is that Abraham was a pretty, Abraham and Sarah were pretty ordinary people. Um, they messed up a lot and God was so gracious to them. And it gave us a place to be human in the middle of the promise that God has given to us. And the promise that God gave Abraham and Sarah is that he would make them a great nation if they would just leave everything they knew and follow him. That he'd give them a descendants as numerous as the, the, the granules of sand on the seashore. And that he would give them a home. And, um, and, and so that's why we, we've, we've invested over, we will invest over a year in the book of Genesis because we really believe that the only way for the church to experience the peace of God is to be realigned to the transcendent and redemptive character and purposes of God. So that's why we're investing in this book of Genesis together. So uh, kind of recapping to where we're picking up today. We're, if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 26 today. But let me just kind of give you a little bit of a flyover to kind of put some bones on this as we enter back in. Um, what's happened is God has called Abraham and Sarah. And, uh, and they've left their homeland. And there have been these many instances where, you know, to, for this promise to be fulfilled, they had to be given a child. They had to be given a son. And uh, decade after decade, they experienced the, the trial of barrenness. 
And they waver in and out of that promise that God has given them. And that promise was ultimately not that they would just have a child, but they would have a child that would crush the head of the enemy eventually in their lineage, that, that he would defeat the power of the devil in the world, the power of sin in the world. And they waver in and out of that promise for decades, going down to Egypt and lying about who they are and their identity and God revealing them out and, and, and having a, a scuffle with Lot and, and the, whole, the whole scenario there, his, his nephew. And what we see over and over and over and over again is that God is faithful. Even though we are tempted to bail on the promises of God, that God is faithful. So as we pick up today, we are picking up not with Abraham and Sarah, but we are picking up with kind of one of the most hidden uh, patriarchs or the most hidden patriarch in the Bible, Isaac. And so we're going to be looking at his life today. And, and it, it, it kind of, if, if you're not careful, you can kind of see Genesis 26 almost like a commercial in the middle of a, of a network TV movie, right? You can kind of skip through it. But I think God wants to bless us with Genesis 26 or he wouldn't put it in the Bible. Amen? So here's our big idea for today. When we doubt the Lord's saving presence in our lives, we resort to thinking that we can save ourselves. When we doubt that God is who he says he is, that his presence is what it really is, then we always resort to, to thinking that we can save ourselves and then acting as if we can. So here's my hope for us today, is that through this kind of obscure scene, we might be further convinced that Jesus is all we need, friends. That we might fearlessly embrace the vulnerable seasons of life that we enter into by God's grace, when all that we want to do is try to save ourselves, try to get out, try to maneuver our ways out of the situations. If you're in a season like that today, uh, my prayer is that the Spirit will keep you at perfect peace in the midst of that season. And if you're not in a season like that, you need to listen because you're going to be one day. And you're probably going to be there many times. So let's dig into Genesis 26 together. I, I really just have two points today, so they're probably pretty big ones. But um, th the first one is this, is that being a sojourner in a famine tempts us to grasp for Egypt. Egypt in the Bible just This is kind of an exegetical little note for you. Egypt in the Bible, as much as I love Egypt, I have friends that are Egyptians, Egypt in the Bible is typically a sign of false comfort and self-protection. And not only that, it's, it's a sign, it's, it's a symbol of a false comfort that leads to bondage. Almost every time God's people go down there, with the exception of the story of Jacob, where God blesses his people through Egypt, I'm sorry, Joseph, um, and, and even Moses, uh, which that gets bad too. We'll get there another day. But um, it, Egypt is always a, a, a symbol of false comfort and self-protection that leads to bondage. And, and um, <clears throat> what, we, what we discover about Isaac today is that the, the situation, the circumstances that he's found himself in, leave him vulnerable and he's tempted to resort to saving himself the same way that we often feel. So let's dig in here together. Verse one in chapter 26. And I'll just say this, we've all got our own Egypts. And I want you to consider what that is for you during this season of your life this morning as we study this. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Instead, dwell in the land of which I should tell you. Sojourn 
in this land, and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. So God comes, here's what happens. God comes to comfort Isaac, and he says the same thing he said to his dad. If you'll trust me, if you'll trust that I'm for you, that my covenant of grace is extended to you, even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to bless you. And not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless the world through you. In other words, your life is going to count for more than you could possibly imagine if you'll listen to me. And what he does is he kind of, he kind of, uh, heads Isaac off at the past because evidently Isaac is thinking the same thing that his dad thought back in the day. Whenever the famine came, they're like, hey, let's go down to Egypt. Egypt's got everything we need, right? It's like the mall. Let's just go there. And so he, he, he's, kind of, he's kind of reading uh, his mind here. And, um, and, and the, the interesting thing is, is that he's, what Egypt would represent to him is, is a source of a, kind of a quick fix, kind of a shortcut, an opportunity not to exercise faith, but to, to take care of himself. And, um, and, and he's saying to him, I, I'm with you and you can sojourn, which what does it mean to be a sojourner? It means to basically be a homeless nomad in a foreign land. He said, you can endure that. You can endure not having a home, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, because I'm with you. Did, did you hear that church? You can endure that type of a lifestyle when you know that God is with you. That's the intended purpose of the presence of God in our lives. It doesn't matter how things look around us. When God is with us, we're at peace. And so he's, he's showing us what it means to live at peace with God in the middle of turmoil. You can be homeless in the middle of a famine because I'm with you. Not, and not only homeless, alone and homeless, right? And God goes on to reiterate that promise to him. I, I don't know what's going on in your life today, but here's what I want to tell you. I know what's going on in some of your lives, but not everybody. Because Jesus is with us through his spirit, we can stay when all we want to do is run. What's it mean for you to stay in the promise of God today? What does it mean for you to stay and trust God? Instead of trying to wiggle out of whatever circumstance that you're in, whatever, whatever false promise that lays ahead of you that, you, that that you want to really chase, what does it mean for you to stay today and trust God? Trust God's provision, trust God's presence in your life. We can stay present in the middle of a trying relationship instead of canceling somebody and hitting the eject button because we've got the promise of the Spirit giving us the power to reconcile with one another. We can, we can stay in a community when everybody, when everybody else wants to bail on a certain community or maybe a community of friends that you've got, you can stay when it's tough. You can stay in a marriage that seems dead and it doesn't give you life anymore because it really reflects God's relationship to us. You can stay in these situations because of God's presence. We don't have to protect ourselves because he's our protector. And I'd love to tell you that Isaac gets this, that, that, yeah, he's like, yeah, God, we're good. I'm just going to settle here. Everything's going to be great. But he's still squirmy in the promise, just like you and I are. And so what's he do? Let's check it out here. Verse six. So Isaac settles in Gerar, 
He does what God tells him to do. And then the men of the place in this city uh, ask him about his wife. Now, if you've been with us, this is like a broken record to you. Because here's what the scriptures say. He said, hey guys, she's my sister. She's not my wife. Because he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca. Because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of Philistines, of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say to me, she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us all. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife, you're going to die. So Isaac and Rebecca, they're like, okay, we're not going to go down to Egypt. But then Isaac kind of, he, he, he kind of goes into to self-help mode here. And he, he tries to figure out how to make life easiest in the city of Gerar as they're alone there. And he takes one out of dad's playbook, right? Abraham does this, I think two times, right? With his wife. Uh, Sarah. And so Isaac does the same thing. And it's, it's this play, the old lie to the foreign king whose kingdom you're staying in to protect yourself because your wife's beautiful kind of play. All right. Don't run that play. It doesn't work. All right. Um, so here's the deal, but God loves Isaac and us because of the promise that Isaac represents too much to let him get away with this. So King Abimelech, right? This pagan king of the Philistines, is looking out of a window and he sees the two of them laughing. I, I guess that's what they called it back in these days. I'm not real sure, but the, the KJV says they were sporting, right? Um, I, I can assure you that whatever it was that was happening was not something you'd want a brother and a sister doing, okay? So they, um, they're there acting like a married couple somehow and it's become obvious to King Abimelech that they've concealed something They've held back the truth to him. They've lied about their marriage to the king. And the king, king of Bimelech, which is like a title, maybe the story of this had kind of passed down through the ages. They were kind of watching out for this. I don't know. <clears throat> let, me just, let me just pause here for a second because I, I think this is a, a great opportunity for us to consider something. If you're in here as a child of God this morning or somebody who's searching for purpose and meaning in the life, Everything that you try to conceal through deceit and lies, this goes for kids and adults. We learn how to be deceivers as kids, right? Um, and maybe you're there right now today, or maybe you're going to be tempted this week, or maybe you've got a laundry list of lies that you're covering up right now. You need to know this. There's always a window, and someone's always watching. Every time a hook is set in the devil by our hearts, the temptation to deceive someone, to lie to someone, he doesn't tell you that there's a window, does he? There's always, when it goes to my kids, a candy wrapper trail. <laughs> there's always a text thread. There's always an email thread. 
there's always a loose end that you can't tie up. And I would propose to you today that that is God's grace on our lives, that God loved Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and the children of the promise, me and you, too much to let him live in the lie because the truth always prevails. Not only the truth here, but the truth about who we are always prevails. If you're here today, however it is that you might be wavering in the promise, however you receive what I just said, however you sit under that tension, mark my words, there's always a window and someone is always watching. And I would propose to you this, that it's far better to suffer the consequences of sin in the family of God than to walk alone in lies. Like I said, I know with with a room this size, with this many people in it, there's, there's probably a handful of people that are in the middle of something super dark right now. And I just want to let you know that the family of God is the only place where you can walk in the truth. The ditch only gets deeper the more time goes on. And so if you're in here today and you've, you're concealing something that's really, really keeping you in bondage, I just want to let you know that the Lord already knows and nothing, nothing you could say or do would surprise the family of God. We've seen it all, right? The history of the church, we've seen it all. It's better to walk in the light and suffer the consequences of sin in the family of God than to walk alone in the lies. Why? Why can I say that with confidence to you? Because as a child of God, if you, if you belong to Jesus, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That word is, a, is that, there's a finality to the word sealed. It's, it's, there's a permanence to the word sealed. That, that Christ loves you so much, that God loves you so much that Christ in you is more powerful than the residue of the flesh left by this world still on you. And the Holy Spirit is always dragging us back into the light opening the window, showing, shedding light on the lies and the bondage that we're in so that we can walk in freedom. And the consequences, they seem unbearable at the time, but they're far better than an eternity of deceit. Listen to what Ephesians chapter one says about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Paul writes this, he says, in him, you also church, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, the good news about what Christ has done for you, and you believed in him. So you heard it and you believed. It led you to faith. At that moment, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It wasn't the second conversion experience. At that moment, you're sealed with the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit, he's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, because Jesus had to go back to the Father to be my righteousness and your righteousness, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for me and you, receiving the prayers of the saints, being our absolute righteousness before our Father. He sent the Spirit so that the work of Jesus would continue in the life of the church. That's why we have the spirit. That's why we have Christ in us and conforming us more to Jesus, making us more look like Jesus every day. 
what that work looks like is dragging us back into the light when we'd rather sit in the darkness. Amen? That's what he wants to do in your life, is to make you more like Christ. And of course that's going to be painful because we're deceived. We live in lies. We believe lies. By faith, he's committed to me and to you, and he will stop at nothing to save you. Could you imagine if God was primary, primarily concerned with our feelings and our reputation? Could you imagine if like he was if if the way that he thought about life was the same way that we thought about life? Like we got to protect ourselves at all costs, our reputation, our feelings, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Could you imagine if he was like, you know, I just don't want to hurt Isaac's feelings today. You know, I, I, I really love him. God bless him. You know, I, I just, I'll just, you know, I'll just let the king of Gerar and one of his men sleep with his wife and forfeit the promise. I'll just let that happen today. That's not who God is. He is concerned about the preservation of your soul and the redemption of the world more than anything else. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way of death. So the way that seems right to our flesh does not lead us to where the promise of God is. When we become convinced that any word in this book right here is not what's best for our life, we are taking a step towards death. Do you know that? We're taking a step away from life and a step toward death. But let me... Let me just bring back up Ephesians 1, that whole idea about the Holy Spirit sealing us. Because I think many times Christians are far too comfortable walking toward death. When we hear the word of the gospel and we respond to it at our conversion, whatever that looks like, sometimes we know when that happens, you know, like the day and time, like when you became a new creation. Some people, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. You kind of drifted that way. And at some point you look back, you're like, yeah, Jesus is king. Wherever you're at on that, doesn't matter. What's important is that you have the Spirit. And the Spirit is always dragging us back into the light, friends. And because of this, we don't get what we deserve. The, the, kind of the primary morality of, the, uh, of, the, of, of Americans is, is this really this Hindu philosophy of karma, right? What's it say? What comes around... How many Christians live as if that is the truth? If what comes around goes around is true in Genesis 26, what happens to Isaac? I can tell you exactly what happens. Because of the lie, something happens. Rebecca ends up with another man. The promise is forfeited. The king of the Philistines, Abimelech, comes out and he publicly executes Isaac. The promise is over. That's exactly what happens. Church, that's exactly what we deserve. We deserve death. We deserve to be eternally separated from God. We don't get what we deserve. So why do we live a life like we want other people, like we want other people to get what they deserve? That's not the gospel. That's not grace. Grace, on the other hand, is stunning. And this leads us to our second point. The grace of God will stun your soul if you dare to live in it. And not only that, not only will God's grace stun your soul, it will make you a stunning person. It'll make, you, it'll make grace through you stunning. And that's what we see happen in this, in this text here. Um, 
you know, I'll, I'll admit that sometimes life in Jesus, it just kind of seems ordinary, doesn't it? Just kind of routine. And, um, and I don't think that's the, the, the normal, I don't think that that's the normal MO for the Christian when we're in a good place with Jesus. I think God's grace is intended to be stunning to us. It's intended to set us back and say, how can this be real? How can I be forgiven? How can I have joy even though my life's been a mess? And we want to we want to talk about that. So Genesis 26, Isaac, Isaac's just blown it. Abimelech knows who he is, knows his heart, and he's and he's like still living in his city, right? I mean, he's under this guy's leadership. So here's what God does. Verse 12: Isaac sowed in the land, and he reaped in the same year more than a hundredfold. Okay, so now what's going on in the world? Do you remember at this time? What's happening? There is a there's a famine. I, last time I checked, I could be wrong. I'm from Kentucky. You guys know this. Last time I checked, things don't grow in a famine. And if they do grow, they don't grow at like the rate of a hundredfold, right? So God, God begins to put his hand on Isaac in such a special way. Now, this isn't, this isn't saying like, hey, if you just, if you just trust God, he's going to make your life great. You're going to become wealthy. I'm not saying that because that, that's, that's not what this passage is about. But what happens is that the Lord begins to bless him in an extraordinary way. Uh, and it, with, with his physical prosperity, which I think is a mirror of his spiritual prosperity uh, belonging to the Lord. And he became rich, verse 13, and he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. I don't know what that means, but that's a lot of like sheep and crops and stuff, right? He's wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied this guy. Now the Philistines this is a kind of a side note, had stopped and filled with, with the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham. And Abimelech said to Isaac, you've got to go away from us for you're mightier than us. Man, you got you to gotta, you gotta appreciate a guy that's so upfront about his insecurities, right? I mean, part of that's kind of refreshing, right? He's like, hey, look, dude, you can take us out. Y'all got y'all to y'all leave. And so... Um, but the thing about Abimelech, and I think God is, I think God shows us um, how much of a dead end morality is, like putting your hope in good morality is, because once again, the king of Abimelech has a better morality seemingly than Isaac, right? I mean, he's more of a stand-up guy than Isaac is. Isaac's lying, Abimelech finds out, calls him out. I love how God does that because he shows us that even though if you've got this pagan king that's a moral guy, he's still lost. You can never earn your way to God's favor, to God's love. It's only through Christ. It's only through faith. Verse 17, so Isaac departs from Gerar, and they encamped in the valley of Gerar, which was outside of the city, so, so further away. He's in the country, and he settles there. And then Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. I think the writer of Genesis, Moses, I think he has this kind of moment, this picture of this generational faith that he's drawing us into as he writes this. So I think there's more than meets the eye here. Think about the statement. Isaac dug again the wells of water that his dad dug, that his father dug. What an image. Why? Because a well is about more than just water, isn't it? We've talked about this. What does a well represent in the Bible? It's a source of life. 
It's a source of flourishing. You see, because God was with Abraham, the Lord led him to find life where there was no life. Guys, there are no wells in the desert. He found water in the desert. Abraham did. And the world around him despised that idea. Now, I don't know if the wells dried up after Abraham passed on, and so that's why they filled them in. It would seem like they would leave them open if they had water still in them, right? They, so they fill them in. So Isaac, when he, gets, when he gets pushed out of Gerar to the Valley of Gerar, he goes out and he begins to go do what his dad did. So, so he'd been discipled into the faith. He goes back and he does what he saw dad doing with his faith. And this, this, this water that he, that he finds makes the world around him despise his life. And I think this is a picture of the Christian life, church. Finding life where there is no life because of Christ. That, that's, that's the stunning reality of grace, is that there is no life to be found in this world. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many things you experience. It doesn't matter how much you let yourself uh, you know, indulge in the pleasures of this world. There is no life here. 70, 80, 90 years, giving it all you got. No life. The only thing that lets us, the only way we experience life in this world is Christ in us in the midst of this world. That's the only thing. You can spend your whole life going down the dead end road of trying to find life in this world but you'll never find it. It's only Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the only way we experience life. Some of us in here know what it's like to, spiritually speaking, redig the well. Maybe your family raised you to follow Jesus and you're coming back to him, kind of a scoop at a time, right? Redigging those wells of faith, searching for genuine, true life, You've been beat up and bruised by this world. And we talked about this. Jesus tells this woman at the well in John 4, what, what does he tell her? He says that like, she's, she's, out, she's out at the well in the middle of the day because she's ashamed because of her life, because of her sin. And Jesus says like, listen, like if you knew who I was, um, you, you, would ask, <laughs> you would ask me for living waters, right? You would ask me for a life that does not end with, that, that's within you, living waters that, that spring up with inside of you. Yet many times we do what Jeremiah warns us not to do in this world. We drink from our own broken cisterns. Jeremiah 2 says this, for my people have committed two, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Who's that? That's Jesus, right? They've forsaken Jesus and hewed out, that word hewed means to like kind of pick out, to, to shovel out, to scoop out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this, this whole idea of a well, of a cistern, of a fountain is all an image about the search to find life in this world, to find meaning, to find purpose in this world. And a well is about accessing a constant source of flowing water. But it's this constant source of flowing water that's not inside of you. You've got to go to access it, right? That was kind of, that was kind of life in the OT days, right? But when Jesus comes, he says, because of the Spirit's work in your life, there's life flowing inside of you. 
It's not about learning from a certain teacher or being in a certain place or a certain land. It's about being in Christ. But our temptation is to find life by digging our own hole in the ground and filling it with water and drinking from it. That's the image of a broken sister. Do you know that? A hole in the ground with water in it, trying to find life from it. Are you trying to find life like that today? Just dug out a hole in the ground, put some water in it, trying to find life from it? I don't, I don't know how this is hitting you today. Where are the lies that you believe? Where are the, cis, the broken cisterns that you keep coming back to? How's the Lord hitting this message in your heart today? Because grace is intended to stun our hearts. But the story doesn't stop there. Verse 19 says this, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar they quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, that water's ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. And he called the name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. Uh, well and they didn't quarrel over it. So he's good. Uh, so he called the name Rehoboth saying, for the Lord has made room for us and we shall, be in, we shall be fruitful in the land. So because God is walking with Isaac, he's walking in the light, he's finding life everywhere he goes. All of the, this, this desert land, this lifeless land, because God is with him, he's finding life everywhere he goes. That's what Christians are able to do. They're able to walk through the deserts of this life with people that they love and point out where the life is. Did you know that? Did you know that that's what it means to have the spirit of God living inside of you? But not only this, the watching world around Isaac senses the presence of God. So here, here, here they are struggling and they've, they've occupied the land for years, the, the, these herdsmen. And here comes this sojourning nomad striking water everywhere he goes. And they push him around until the Lord makes space in Rehoboth and then from there, verse 23 says this, he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that same night and he reiterates this promise to him, right? He wants him to be sure. I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. I'm with you. I'm gonna bless you. And I'm gonna multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So then Isaac responds and he worships. He built an altar there and he called the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. God reiterates the promise, I'm still here. And I think that God meets him there because he wants him to feel the grace of God. He wants to stun his soul with his presence. But Abimelech then notices something that's happening here. He, he went to him from Gerar um, with an advisor and the commander of the army. And Isaac says to him, why have you come to me? Like you hated me, you kicked me out, you remember? And, you know, Abimelech's a pretty smart guy. He's like, hey, God's with him and God's about to be against us. So we got to do something about this. And so verse 28, I love this. He says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. How amazing is that? You have this pagan king, Philistine king, you know, where Goliath comes from, right? And he says, we see God's grace on your life because I know you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Remember the window? So he says, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make covenant with you. 
that you will do us no harm. He's afraid of Isaac, this wandering nomad in the middle of the wilderness. And why? Because God's with him. Because God's with him. So what do they do? They made a feast and they ate and drank together. (laughs) These two enemies. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. And the rest is kind of history. Grace is the only explanation of Isaac's life, even to a pagan king. If the pagan world around us, the unbelieving world, were to look into your life and try to make sense of it, what would they say? How would they explain it? Would it be, oh, yeah, he's a pretty good dude, or he does this, or he does that, or would it be, dude, God's grace is on that guy's life. Let me just tell you. That's where I want to be. That's where my desire for this church to be is, is that the only, the only way people would be able to look at our family together is to say that's only by God's grace. Not only for us to be stunned by God's grace and his mercy in our own lives, but to be a stunning representatives to, the, to the, the grace of God for the whole world. That's what God wants to do through the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, that while we were still a far way away from you, that you sent Jesus and you've reconciled us to him. Father, I pray um, that we might believe that even though we've dug these cisterns with our life, these broken cisterns, we've looked for life in all the wrong places, that you have put life inside of us to such a degree that it's like a spring of water inside of us. That it doesn't matter how tempting the Egypts of our flesh are, It doesn't matter how bad the famines of our world get, that we can experience life because of grace. And that grace is meant to not only stun us, but stun the world. So Father, here's my prayer this morning, that that you um, you would help us to receive that grace, that you would help us um, to live fully in that grace as much as we can, Lord, to make all of it that we possibly can, not be so afraid of the consequences of our sin to confess it and receive grace. God, would you humble us? Our morality will never be enough to save us. God, break us so that we can be stunned by grace. Father, help us to get all of the life out of Jesus that we possibly can in this world because you weren't stingy when you sent your son. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us to watch one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.